Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is the awesome Vanessa Block, the producer of the extraordinary film Pig. I admit we are a little late to talking about Pig. It's now available on video on demand after coming out this summer. And it stars Nicolas Cage as a man named Rob who lives in an Oregon forest with his pig, a truffle-sniffing pig, who finds truffles that Rob sells. When the pig is taken, Rob has to go into the big city, Portland, to find him. Block co-wrote the story with Michael Cernoski, who directs. And if you think Pig sounds like it's going to be a little bit John Wick and a little bit Taken, except with a pig, you're not the only one. But as Block explains... That was never the plan. We talk about that, as well as her very cool, very unconventional route to becoming a filmmaker, and about where you can eat some of the delicious food that is shown on screen in Pig, among other things. So, without further ado, here's Vanessa Block, producer and co-writer of Pig. Vanessa Block, welcome to Movie Maker. It is such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm a huge fan of the latest film that you produced, Pig, which I think is the certainly the best film I've seen this summer. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. To, to begin, how did you become a producer? <laughs> it was a very circuitous route to this point um, and a very non-traditional one. Um, I actually, my background is in chemistry I was going to be a physician. So I studied chemistry as an undergraduate. That's what my degree is in. Um, I was also pre-med and was pursuing the medical track. My father's a cardiologist. I grew up watching him work in the office and with patients. And it was always something that I wanted to do. Um, But ended up working at Children's Hospital for a period of time and kind of getting a more intimate view of the, the culture within that system and realizing that it wasn't all that I had envisioned it to be um, and wasn't, you know, didn't feel like a full expression of everything that I wanted to do in this life. So kind of had a crisis of faith moment where I had an enormous investment in the sciences and kind of realized in this moment that I I don't want to commit to a full career in that field. So what am I going to do? So I ended up um, getting my master's in global medicine, which is essentially an MPH. Um, it's, you know, I, I was hoping to parlay my my background in the sciences into some kind of field that dealt with medicine, but from an international standpoint. And it was during that master's program that I focused my study around this issue of sexual violence against women in the Congo. Um, and I had always been a lover of film. I had been writing screenplays on the side as a creative outlet during undergrad, you know, while I was being buried under the, the sciences. Um, so it was always this, this kind of secret love and, and passion that I had, but never thought that I would commit my, my life to it. So during this master's program, it kind of became this like intersection of my love of film and my passion surrounding this issue of violence against women in this particular part of the world. So I decided to make a documentary about it um, and ended up launching a Kickstarter campaign, got this project financed and then literally went out to Congo myself um, and just shot the whole documentary you know, myself. So it was this crash course in filmmaking, everything from cinematography to running sound to producing to directing um, through the making of this film uh, with very limited resources. So I was really kind of forced just by necessity to to learn the ins and outs of all aspects of making a film. 
And it was during that process that I realized my deep love of kind of all aspects of that. So that film ended up doing really well. It was received, we were shortlisted for the Academy Awards in 2016, we sold to Netflix and it kind of, that became the pivot point for my entire career in life into the film business full time. And then from there, um, producing specifically, I mean, I I write, I direct, and I produce. Um, Michael Sarnowski, who directed and wrote Pig, was a dear friend from undergrad who I brought on to edit um, and produce my documentary, The Testimony. So we worked together in that capacity on that film and then sort of assumed uh, you know, reciprocal roles on this next one on Pig. And so I assumed the role of, of producer and co-story. Uh, Michael wrote and directed, and, and that's how that came to be. So now I do film full time and I'm very happy in the field. That is incredible. That is definitely the most circuitous and coolest route to filmmaking <laughs> I've heard in the hundred or so people I've talked to for this. I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> so you never became a doctor doctor, but did spend a lot of time obviously in that world. Yeah, I didn't actually go to medical school. I was going to, I almost did. I got in, I took the MCAT. I mean, I took, I took it all the way. And then it was, it was this moment where it was like, if you go to medical school, you're going to stay on that track. Um, because once you're in, it's just, it's such an all consuming road. So that became the moment where it was like, I need to do some really deep soul searching here and decide if this is how I want to spend my life. I mean, we only get one shot, you know, at this life and you, you better make the most of it. When you make a film, anytime you make a film, when you go into a small town or something, you have to figure out who your allies are and what resources already exist. Who did you call in the Congo? Um, was it a local film office? Was there anyone available to help you? Yeah, so it was really important to me to shoot the film kind of in the region of the Democratic Republic of the Congo that where women were most susceptible to attacks of sexual violence. And so that basically is Eastern Congo. So the city of Goma became my base. Um, it's also where all of the mineral wealth of the country is concentrated. Um, and that's the reason that all of the fighting exists around that area is because of this um, clash over these resources that are worth literally trillions of dollars under the soil. Um, so that part of Congo is so rural and off the grid and is essentially a war zone that there, I mean, I didn't have cell phone service for most of my time there. Internet was almost impossible to connect to. So I was really off the grid with no ability to, you know, call like a 1-800 number for Canon if something went wrong with my camera. I literally, I had the manual and I had sort of my own intuition and I had to make do with just that. So there really wasn't any resources. I What I did have um, prior to the trip was this really amazing documentary filmmaker, this guy named Daniel McCabe. Um, I found him actually through Kickstarter. He had made sort of a sweeping doc, a feature length doc about the mineral wars in Congo. So I found him, I reached out to him and he was kind enough to set me up with a fixer and a translator in country. And they really became my guides on the ground. Um, so I was really lucky to have him and his wealth of experience to kind of help guide things um, in pre-production. But once I was there, I, I really had to just rely on those two guys that I was traveling around with who were who were great um, and very professional and, and knew their country super well. But um, yeah, there was just, there was not a lot of resources available to us because of the nature of the, the region. Yeah, I'm not 
think I'm not doing the thing where Americans think of Africa monolithically and assume that everything is the same, but I've been in Kenya a little bit and had a similar experience where once you get out of cities, it's hard to explain to an American audience how isolated you are. I mean, it's two hours to the nearest ATM. Like it would be very, very difficult to get in touch with any part of the West um, if something went awry and you're there, it sounds like Congo is even more isolated than that. And you're there making this, you know, potentially troubling film for them. I mean, did you feel safe? No, I I felt very unsafe the entire time. And we had some really close calls that were incredibly scary. I remember a moment actually with my, uh, my translator, um, he, his name was Nelson, he, where he, he had worked with CNN a lot. Um, so with like a lot of war journalists that came in to um, basically report on some of the, the infighting in the country. But he said to me, he's like, you know, you have to be prepared to die doing this job. And he's like, are you prepared for that? And I, you know, at the time it was sort of, it was a strange question to be asked on a first film. And I knew that I was going into a place that was incredibly dangerous, but I don't think that I had even fully thought through, you know, that that could really be the outcome of this experience. So yeah, we, we tracked down rebels. I wanted to interview female rebels. So we were way out in the bush in the middle of the jungle and um, came upon a rebel camp where they thought that we were spying on them from the government. And so I had guns pointed at me. I had my camera taken Um, and, you know, the language there, there's not a lot of English speakers. So it's mainly Swahili, Lingala, and then a little bit of French injected, which is sort of a, a remnant of the Belgian colony colonization, um, none of which I speak. And so I'm hearing a lot of things shouted and I hear like espionage, espionage, which is like spy. I knew that was something about spying in in French um, and was able to later find out from my translator that they did think that we were spying. And the way I got out of that, which was crazy and sort of a fun uh, cinephile story is that these rebels who were essentially like late teens, early twenties guys that were just like high on some substances with like AK 47s and grenade launchers um, running around the jungle. They had seen the American film Rambo. It was like the one movie that they had seen and they were obsessed with Rambo and Stallone. And so they, they basically were like, we'll let you go, but we want you to film us in like a Rambo kind of style action film. So I have all of this footage of me like running through the jungle in the pouring rain, shooting these guys, like pointing their guns at the camera, like classic American action movie style, like to the side and their grenade launchers. And so, and then at the end of it, their their leader wanted to record what was essentially a manifesto about his, um, his group which was called the Mai Mai Shitani rebel group. And so I have footage that never ended up being in the documentary. It was what I needed to shoot to save my life, essentially, where he kind of speaks to the mission of their group and, um, you know, what their ethos was. But that was just one of many stories that were pretty, pretty crazy on that trip. It was a very tough film to make. Making that doc was exponentially more challenging than making Pig, which was a narrative. (laughs) scripted, which is so funny because people have a difficult time trusting documentarians with scripted films. It's um, it's a very frustrating thing for people that start in docs 
I think the industry struggles to see the skill sets as being translatable. You know, they question whether or not, well, you know, you can tell a story, but are you able to work with actors? Um, are you able to construct a scene? It's a different set of muscles, but in many ways, um, it is much easier, I think. So. <laughs> so when did Pig start? Were you talking about Pig like kind of as a release valve of making this very intense documentary or was it? It came, it actually came. So what happened is we made the testimony, Michael and I collaborated on that, as I mentioned, and that film really kind of solidified for us that there was a creative alchemy that really was very powerful between us. Um, our skill sets were additive. We, we just, we made good things together. And so from that project, we decided to go on and basically, um, you know, write and, and begin to put together a series of other things. And it was sort of like, well, whichever one of those goes first will be the thing that we throw our efforts behind. And so Pig came about, I can't remember exactly the timeline. I mean, it was a couple years after the documentary came out that we finished and polished up that script, got that out there, and then it made its way into the hands of Nick Cage. Um, and he really loved it. Um, and we were off to the races. Uh, that film though, too, putting that together, it was riddled with challenges. It wasn't as if, you know, once he signed on, the whole thing was catalyzed, but, um, yeah, we just set, sort of slow and steady built that out and that became the next project. Yeah, it's such an interesting film and I wanted to get into kind of spoilers um, since it's been out for a little while, I hope that's okay. I don't wanna give away plot points or anything, but I do think there's an impression from people who maybe see the trailer and it has Nick Cage in it. They think it's gonna be, I had this like judgmental sound when I said Nick Cage and I love Nick Cage. So I just want to be super clear that I'm not shading Nick Cage. Um, <laughs> but they thought this is probably going to be an action movie. This is probably going to be John Wick where he has to go and save his pig and kill a bunch of people to do it. Mm -hmm. And then it goes in a completely different, beautiful, humane, completely unexpected direction. How much were you intentionally playing against expectations? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that that is a question that I've, I've heard a lot. Um, it's interesting to me for two reasons. One, that there, that Nicolas Cage as an actor seems to kind of create a certain expectation. There's like a cultural consciousness that surrounds him that seems to always define him as like this hyper-masculine action hero when the breadth and scope of his filmography to me really represents something much deeper than that. He certainly occupied those roles, but he's also been in films like Adaptation and Raising Arizona and Leaving Las Vegas. So mm -hmm. he's a he's an actor that's proven himself uh, very talented in a range of things. And so to me, I, I don't feel like this role was as much a departure as it was kind of a return to those sorts of more quiet introspective roles. So that's one thing that I always think is interesting, just that those are the, that's how he gets kind of typecast now. The yeah. other is um, just kind of this like weird fetishization of, of violence and revenge that we seem to have this expectation that, you know, that's the way films will always go when something is taken from a person or a man in particular, that it's going to like somehow end in violence. Um, you know, that that I think says a lot about the American ethos and maybe we need to dig a little more deeply into that at some point collectively, um, the American psyche. But um, 
we did not seek to subvert anything in the writing and the making of the film. I think we wrote the film with no actor in mind. It was inspired by the image of a, of a man who was a truffle hunter sitting on his porch with a gun guarding his truffle animal because truffle animals are highly regarded and highly prized because what they find under the soil is so expensive. Um, so we just, we thought that that image was tender and thoughtful and provocative and sweet. Um, and that became the kernel of the idea. But Nick came to us much later in the process after the script had already been written. Um, and I don't think we fully understood that that would be the expectation, just having him play the role of Rob until the film came out and it was clear you know, in like the blogs and all of the, the writings about the film that that was going to be the expectation. And we knew that that wasn't the film. So if anything, we were worried that people would be disappointed, um, you know, that they weren't getting the big payoff of violence at the end. Um, but no, that, that we didn't seek to subvert. I would have been completely fine with a, you know, Portland John Wick, but I love this movie so so much in a way that I wouldn't have loved that movie like just it's such a deeper affection for this movie and I think it's brave to make any movie at this point that doesn't go in for the violent tropes I mean sometimes a movie is sort of sensitive and thoughtful throughout and then has to have the violent ending because that's how movies work mm -hmm. and this one really just tells you there are other ways like you can talk through your differences you can resolve things in other ways um, none of which is giving away what happens in the movie which is such mm -hmm. a just cool, beautiful climax. Like I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I, I don't think, like I don't personally have a huge interest in, in violence, neither does, does Michael. Like the, I don't think those are the things that really stick to people. It's kind of, you know, that's sort of the junk food, you know, it's kind of fun and satisfying while you're eating it, but it doesn't really, there's no, there's nothing memorable about that. Whereas this, I think, taps into something, as you said, very universal, very human. I think it expects better things of us um, and kind of awakens that yearning in a way that we have that I don't even know that we knew that we had. Yeah, yeah. How was getting him involved? Did he, it sounds like Nick Cage was really interested in this. I don't know how aggressively you, you all were pursuing him or if his just, it's just sort of crossed his desk and he said, I need to do this. It was sort of, it was the latter. Um, the script made its way to WME, the agency. They had recently signed Nick as a new client. I think they were looking for character-driven, elevated material to put in front of him that maybe had some genre elements to it. So the script just made its way to him via, you know, the people at the agency and whatever that system looks like, which I'm not like super privy to. Um, and he just loved the material. He read it and had a real reverence for what was on the page and never never sought to, to change anything. It was more that he felt that he could inhabit the character of Robin Feld based on where he was in his personal life and what he had gone through professionally and all of that. It just, it was sort of a kismet moment where he could seamlessly inhabit that man. Um, and you feel that in his performance, It's it feels very true to him in a way. Yeah, I, I, I almost don't want to cheapen it by getting into, you know, what kind of Oscar campaign are you doing? But I really think he should be in the conversation because I really do think it's one of the best. It's some of the best acting I've seen in years. And you mentioned that he's got kind of gotten 
pigeonholed in some circles as like an action star. Um, I thought his acting was also incredibly good in Mandy. He's a very, very good actor. And I love leaving Las Vegas and love all the movies that you mentioned. So I'm really happy. I'm really very happy to see this movie succeed um, and get the attention that it has. I did have some Portland questions because Portland is such an incredibly cool film community. And I think you used it perfectly and really captured Portland as Portland is. Mm-hmm. So where did Portland come into it? Well, question, have you spent a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest? A little bit, not a lot. But you're, you're a fan of Portland. You know the city fairly well. Uh, I've only spent a couple of weeks there, but I really, really enjoyed the time that I spent there. And I thought you got the eeriness of it the incredible food culture. There's just so many people who are so talented at what they do, but they're not in New York or LA. So they maybe don't get the recognition they should. Exactly. Yeah. No, that was one of the the things that we felt visiting there too. It's kind of a place that exists a little bit on the fringes, but is this really fascinating amalgamation of so many different talents and textures And you see that not only in like the culinary scene, you see that even just in the scenic beauty. You know, the forest there moves through these different realms of something that feels very primordial, very like outside of time. And then you have new growth forests that feel kind of touched by man. And then you have amazing rock formations and waterfalls. So just everything about the place has this kind of patchwork textured quality to it that's so rife with potential for making a film. And on top of it, they have just a phenomenal crew and film community. Um, You know, this was obviously our first feature film that we had ever done. And so we don't have a ton to compare crews to, but we were told by our first AD who's worked all over the country that the Portland crew was the best that he's ever worked with. I mean, they were just so professional, efficient, warm, friendly, cool, went above and beyond. We were working on a, we had a 20 day shoot. So it was very short, a ton of locations moving around a lot. um, And everyone was just, everyone was working kind of in this cohesive fashion towards the same goal. And it wasn't about, you know, ego or, or, you know, sort of, like getting into what any individual person needed. It was more about what can we do to support the production and make the most beautiful product possible, which is pretty special. Um, The Portland journey began, Michael and I actually took during the script writing phase, we took a number of pre-scouts up to Portland from LA. So we met with um, various restaurateurs, we met with food critics, we toured restaurants. Um, we met with a prolific truffle hunter um, named Jack Zarnecki, who's kind of a legend, um, an older gentleman there that's been truffle hunting for years. Um, they own a company called White Truffle Oil, and his two sons own wineries and restaurants um, in and around the Portland area. So they're like this really prolific food family. Um, And we're just a wealth of knowledge about that scene and also the authenticity of truffle hunting. They took us on kind of a mock truffle hunt. They use dogs. Um, There's an Italian breed of dog that I can't remember the name. It's sort of difficult to pronounce, but they use that, that breed of dog for their truffle hunting. And they showed us how the dog finds the truffle and the whole process, which was fascinating. And then ended up being consultants on the film. So um, Chris Zarnecki, the uh, one of the sons was um, the the chef who cooked the mushroom tart at the beginning of the film. So when Nick is 
in the, in the cabin cooking for the pig, that's chef Zarnecki's recipe. And he was on set that day instructing Nick on how to cook it. Um, wow. Also for the final meal, not giving anything away, that pigeon dish was um, by a chef uh, named Gabe Rucker, who owns a restaurant in Portland called Le Pigeon. And um, that was his recipe also. So he came to set for that day um, to instruct Nick on cooking that meal. So we just really integrated members of that community into our production to create a realism surrounding the food. And that was a really important aspect of it. Are there, <laughs> I, I hate to go off on this tangent, but if you wanted to do sort of a pig tour of Portland, are there other places that people could go to eat some of the food? I mean, the bread looked pretty incredible too. Absolutely. So another thing that was really important to us was to make this kind of a tour through the food scene of the city so that people could go and experience Rob's journey in a way. Um, so almost everything you see there is a place that one could visit and sit down and have a meal. Unfortunately, the one exception is the restaurant uh, Chef Finway, uh, the restaurant where Rob kind of tears apart that, that chef. Um, that was a place called Saucebox in downtown Portland, and it closed since we shopped there. So that's no longer open. But um, yes, the salted baguette um, is a recipe from a lovely bakery called the Helen Bernhard Bakery outside of Portland. We shot at that bakery. Um, the rustic mushroom tart is done by Chef Chris Zarnecki, who owns the Joel Palmer house. So people should definitely go eat there. And then, as I mentioned, the pigeon dish at the end is by Gabe Rucker at Le Pigeon. We also shot in the oldest restaurant in Portland, which everyone should go to. It's amazing. It's called Huber's. I don't know if you remember the scene where um, Amir and Rob it's sort of a transitional scene where they're going down to the fight club and they go, they walk through a really beautiful old looking restaurant with a lot of activity. Do you remember that? There's stained yep. glass windows on the ceiling. That is a place called Huber's. Um, and it's the oldest restaurant in Portland. We ate there in one of our pre-scouts. They have turkey sandwiches and Spanish coffee is what they're known for. So definitely check that out when you go there next. That sounds amazing. Uh, is there anywhere you personally really liked? Uh, it sounds like all of those, but is there anywhere that you would recommend people check out? I think all of them. I mean, Huber's is really special to me because that's a restaurant that has so much history and um, they had had, the owners had had a bad experience with other film productions shooting there in the past. So they had closed their doors to anyone shooting in Huber's for many, many years. Um, and after spending a lot of time with the owner and kind of walking him through what our intentions were and how careful we were going to be in his sacred space, he was kind enough to kind of break his rule and let us shoot there. So that'll always stick with me as, as something very memorable and special, because when you're making a movie, you are, you're like literally invading spaces with a huge crew and, you know, things can get very messy. And I think it's really important to remember that like, you know, when you leave there, these businesses have to resume, you know, their normal kind of way of doing things. So you, you want to really honor and respect the spaces. Um, so yeah, I think Huber's holds a very special place in my heart. You mentioned that you were shooting for 20 days. I know you were going up there beforehand. Um, was there a place that you found to kind of zen out? I mean, I don't know if you even had time to zen out in a 20 day shoot. Um, yeah. There, I found that there were so many great places in Portland to kind of just clear your mind. Did you find any of those? 
Yeah. I, th- like you said, there wasn't a ton of time. I think on when we had the breaks in between like weekends or whatever, I honestly, I was just sleeping a lot because there, there was very little sleep happening throughout the whole shoot, but there were a few times that, um, I went to on a couple hikes. So just being in the forest there, which again, are just unbelievable. Like they're otherworldly. Um, so that was, there's a place called Salmon Creek Trail, excuse me. Um, Mount Hood National Forest is really exceptional. Um, Eagle Fern, where we shot, uh, Rob's cabin actually rebuilt in Eagle Fern. Um, so there's a few really exceptional hiking trails that I would do on occasion to kind of clear my head. And is Michael, your co-writer and the director, from there or how, who, who discovered Portland? I mean, not that someone needs to discover Portland, but who yeah. out of the LA based people knew about Portland? Neither of us really knew about it. I mean, we had been there, like I have some, some friends and sort of an extended family member that lives in West Lynn, which is not far from Portland. So we had both independently made, you know, a few trips out there, but neither one of us is from there. Michael's from Wisconsin and I'm from Northern California. Um, So it was really something that was born out of just doing research and realizing that there was still a pretty vibrant truffle hunting scene in Portland. It's obviously like a very fascinating um, kind of culinary capital. Um, And there was just a texture again and and a history, honestly, to Portland that was so fascinating to us. So it just felt like the appropriate setting for all of those reasons. But um, until we started making those fairly regular scouting trips to really delve deeply into the culture, we had not had a ton of experience in the city. Hmm. Um, I always ask people, what are you doing next? But I feel like that kind of negates the thing that they've just done. So I want to, what are you doing next with, have you taken a minute to just say, we made a great, we made the movie we wanted to make. We're really happy with this. It's interesting because COVID kind of created a wonky timeline with all of that processing. So we had finished the film a year prior to its release, essentially. We've kind of been sitting on this film. Um, So I think you know, it's, it's reawakened, obviously, such an appreciation for what we, we did accomplish with such limited resources. And to see the reception be this positive has been just amazing, surprising, heartening. I also just don't even know that the reception would have been this positive if COVID hadn't happened, because I think in a weird way, COVID kind of forced this introspection. It forced people to slow down and maybe think about some of the things that we explore thematically in the film that may have just kind of, you know, gone over people's heads if we hadn't had the lockdown. So in a weird way, you know, the film coming out in this post-pandemic or mid-pandemic world was really the best thing for the film. Um, But yeah, we had spent the last year kind of processing the experience um, and then moving into working on other things as well. So I have a science fiction film that, I'm writing and then I'll direct that Michael is a co-story by on. Michael has, uh, we have a television series that we're putting together um, about, based on a a true story of a guy with extrasensory perception. That's really cool. Um, A very like character driven piece that we're, that we co-wrote that we're moving forward. Um, And then Michael has a few independent things. So yeah, just like always wanting to tell good stories um, and, I guess, force introspection in a way. Like, I think that's kind of our our, our goal is to just get people to think, um, encourage that. It's so important. Is that 
kind of your your goal as a filmmaker to get people to be more reflective to slow down a little bit because that is one thing not to bring it back to portland but one thing i love about portland is that it is kind of one of the last great analog cities i mean there's a lot the biggest bookstore in the country um, a lot of record stores there's a lot of just disconnect go see a live band mm -hmm. go to a movie theater is that kind of your your agenda as a filmmaker yeah it's interesting i i think just it, it I don't know that I would say it's an agenda so much as it's just, I think that I'm oriented very much that way towards curiosity and introspection and also just kind of questioning of systems and the status quo. Like, I think it's so easy, especially in a social media obsessed world to kind of fall into the role of sheep, mm -hmm. um, just kind of following the herd and not really processing the intelligence of decisions that are being made by systems. And I just think that that's such a dangerous precedent. So I'm always just trying to challenge myself through my own art forms, through my own writing to question what we have just kind of accepted as normal. Um, and so I, I'm sure that that kind of trickles through into the messaging, if you will, of the films that I make. Um, but I, I would say it comes less from like an active agenda and more from just an expression of what I think I do internally. Yeah, I said agenda in quotes because I couldn't think of the right word. I think I wanted to say like remit or something like that. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> because, <laughs> because agenda, people always say like, well, what's your agenda? And they mean what's your insidious, what's the worst possible motive you could have for whatever you're doing? And I don't mean it like that because, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Um, in terms of what you produce, it's obviously not trying to, uh, you know, be this hyper extreme agenda or something like that. In any way, it's the opposite. It kind of reminds me of the movie Leave No Trace, which I think was also the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, yeah. In terms of just being very reflective and slowing things down and realizing that there isn't just one way to live your life. Like you can, you can take a different approach and it might be better. Yeah, I mean, it's even just like, it speaks to what you said about the expectation people have going into this film. Like, I think we need to question ourselves as audiences as to why we carry that expectation of violence, of like even just filmmaking in general, the structure of movies, particularly American cinema. Why have we become satisfied with basically being programmed to expect certain plot things to happen why do we expect things to devolve into violence? Like that's a kind of programming that we need to question within ourselves. And I think it says a lot when people are pleasantly surprised and sort of, you know, excited by the idea of a film not moving in that direction. So just, yeah, just the need to kind of break out of these mindsets that um, have in some ways out, sort of outlived their usefulness and their value, I think is, is really a critical part of what we do, especially in an age where films are becoming so formulaic and the streaming and whatnot, it's just, you know, not to knock Netflix, but I feel like every time I go on and I look at the top 10, it's just like, everything is just sort of the same. It feels like, you know, there's, there's an algorithm that's like spitting out these, these films rather than human beings creating these, these pieces. Yeah. So we challenge that. So it seems like the theatrical experience is really important to the type of films that you make. I mean, disconnecting and focusing in on someone else's life for a while. 
Absolutely. The theatrical experience is a huge reason why I got into this business. It's very sacred to me. It's the way in which films were intended to be viewed. I mean, streaming is amazing in many ways because it's brought in the access. And like, I believe so much in the importance of films accessibility to the general public. And let's be honest, like ticket prices are out of control. Like how many people, like a family of four, like you can't drop a hundred dollars to go see a movie. That's insane. So I think we have to address that part of it as well. It's a very complicated systemic issue. Um, so streaming has its merits, but I just, I hope not at the expense of the theatrical experience. It's just a sacred, beautiful way of seeing a film. There's a magic to it and we can't lose it. That was Vanessa Block. If you haven't seen Pig, of course, I recommend checking it out. If you'll indulge me, I'd also love if you would check out the latest issue of Movie Maker Magazine. It includes an interview with Vanessa Block. And on the cover, we have director Edgar Wright and actress Thomasin McKenzie in support of their new film, Last Night in Soho. There's a bit of a tie-in to the interview that you just heard with Vanessa Block because Leave No Trace, the film that I brought up that's directed by Deborah Granick, was kind of the American breakout for Thomasin McKenzie, star of Last Night in Soho. She's great. The movie is gorgeous. I think you'll really like it. And I think you'll really like the whole issue. It's one of the strongest ones we've done in the two years that I've been with Movie Maker. We have Paul Schrader. We have Paul Verhoeven. We have people not named Paul. Pick it up. I think you'll be surprised and delighted with what's inside. We'd also love for you to check out everything we're doing at moviemaker.com and to visit this podcast anytime you like. I don't really have a clever sign-off. If you have any ideas, feel free to hit me up at tim.molloy at moviemaker.com and I'll see you back here real soon.